Last month, the surf band Robotron released a five-track album of live recordings, live set 2023, and it's from that collection that we pulled a song to play for this week's episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio, and this song is called Intro Spectro Man. It is from a live set 2023. Like I said, it's from the band Robotron. You can find it on Bandcamp, Robotron, and then the number one, dot bandcamp.com, or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Big thanks to the band for letting us play their music here on the show. You'll hear this song again in its entirety at the end of this episode. To get to the end, though, we've got all the stuff in the middle on this, this week's episode. Got some really cool stuff in the middle. First of all, of course, we've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review and Kenny's Look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Two more incredible segments, just knocking it out of the park, man, just making the podcast even better with their contributions. And then... The main conversation this week, we are having a returning guest, Kelly Hogaboom, coming on to talk about the movie The Abominable Snowman. Yes, it's a Hammer film. Yes, I've talked about this Hammer film before with a couple of fellow podcasters on another podcast back in the day, but I don't think I've ever talked about it here on Monster Kid Radio. And when Kelly said that they wanted to talk about this movie here on the show, I'm all in, man. It's Peter Cushing. I'm never going to say no to Peter Cushing. Plus, this movie's just really cool. Got a lot of really cool stuff in it, and we're going to talk about that with Kelly here in a little bit. I do want to take a moment here to say thank you to all of you who have supported Monster Kid Radio this year in the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. The ballot is live over at rondoaward.com. Go check that out to check out the entire ballot to see all the awesome categories and nominees in all of those awesome categories, it's just an amazing thing that David Bolton has put together. It's just a huge thanks. Also, I have heard from David. Some people have reached out to me about something that I said in a previous episode a few weeks ago. I have heard from David regarding the Monster Kid Hall of Flame. Hall of Flame? <laughs> Normally I'd cut that out. I'm going to leave that in there. The Monster Kid Radio Hall of Fame. Awards that I won not too long ago, a few years ago, and it's still on the way. So I know I had some people reach out to me, and I suspect some of you may have even reached out to David to ask him about it on my behalf, unprompt. You know, I, I didn't ask you to do that, but if you did, thank you. It, it is something that's going to happen. I have been in contact with David. I don't know if I'm going to get it before the wedding that's coming up here in a few weeks from me and Beth. And I bring up the wedding because I'm going to use that as a segue to the next thing that I want to mention. This is the last episode you're going to get with original content for the bulk of the episode from me for at least a week. Now, Steve Turek, who has graciously offered to do more guest stints here on Monster Kid Radio, has offered to do more. And I, I didn't ask him to do it, so Steve, thank you so much. Steve Turek's been on the show, of course, quite a bit. He's a longtime friend of Monster Kid Radio and me personally. Also... He's an incredible podcaster on his own, also nominated for a Rondo Award with the Diecast Movie Podcast, where I've been a guest a couple of times, which is super cool. You know, Steve just is awesome. He's just great. So he is going to be doing uh, next week's episode, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. But finally, the last thing I want to mention about the wedding, and please, I'm not saying anybody's under any obligation. I only bring it up because I've had some people ask me about a wedding registry for Beth and I. Uh, we are getting married 
on April 8th. And yes, we do have a wedding registry. I've had some of you ask me about whether or not we have a wedding registry set up, and we do. It's through Amazon. I'm going to give you the shortened version of the link, tinyurl.com slash registry. There will be a link in the show notes. Again, I'm not saying please send us stuff or whatever. I just I only bring it up because some people have asked me about it and I thought I'd mention it here. But again, link in the show notes. Links in the show notes for everything that we're talking about here on the show this week, as always. But don't go there yet. I mean, listen to the show first. I mean, I suppose you could listen and go to the website at the same time. You do you. I'm not the boss of you. I'm just the guy that's running the show and the guy who's going to step away from the microphone so that Mark Matsky and Kenny and everybody else can get in on the action this week. Here we go. Monsters from Under the Sea, Atomic Frankensteins, and Grandpa Monster 2. Classic monster memorabilia vendors, movie and TV stars, signing autographed photos. It's all coming to the Marriott Pittsburgh North, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. It's Monster Bash! Fans who grew up with monster movies in the theater and on TV will descend on the Marriott Pittsburgh North. Hundreds and hundreds of fans. Don't you scare miss out as fans travel from all over the country to meet, shop, and enjoy classic monster entertainment. Coming to Monster Bash in June, Audrey Dalton, star of The Monster That Challenged the World, and Boris Karloff's thriller TV shows. Charlotte Austin, who starred in Frankenstein 1970 with Karloff and Ed Wood's The Bride and the Beast. Lynn Lugosi Sparks, the granddaughter of Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi. Daniel Roebuck, star of countless films, TV's Matlock, and Grandpa Munster in the latest Munsters movie. Plus, he's a super fan and collector of classic monster memorabilia. Beverly Washburn, actress in Spider Baby with Lon Chaney Jr., Thriller, and Disney's Old Yeller. Tom Savini, actor, makeup man, special effects genius, with credits that include Creep Show, Tales from the Dark Side, The Black Phone, and so much more. Pamela Pierce, actress and daughter of the director that brought us The Legend of Boggy Creek. John Russo, co-writer and zombie from the original Night of the Living Dead, the origin of the modern zombie and Ohio TV horror host legend, the one and only Son of Ghoul, still creeping to TV sets after all these years. Plus, Cleveland horror hosts Drac and Countess Corita. Monster Bash is wall-to-wall vendors and a giant horror hotel packed with classic monster movie fans. Don't miss out. Three-day VIP admission is $55 in advance or $60 at the door for all three packed days. 
Single day admission at the door is $25. It's all at the Pittsburgh Marriott North, Friday through Sunday, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. Get your advanced membership admission online at creepyclassics.com. That's creepyclassics.com. More information is available at monsterbash.us or call 724-238-4317. It's Monster Bash. The creators of Tales from the Crypt and the author of Psycho have teamed up to present one of the most frightening film fantasies you will ever endure. Welcome to uh, the house that dripped blood. Turn the knob. Open the door. Step past the bones and don't venture beyond the light. Terror waits for you in every room. Uh, the house that dripped Blood. No one has lived here in a long, long time, but many have tried and died. The previous owners are all still around, and they can't wait to meet you. The house that dripped blood. You can come in any time, but you can't leave until they let you. <laughs> a Midnight Encore from Filmways rated PG. Conan Doyle's classic masterpiece of mystery, suspense, and horror, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed. What depth a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. Be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room. That it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa. Elementary, my dear Watson. There are no tarantulas in South Africa. What do you want me to do? Identify anything I may find. Strange things are to be found on the moor. Like this, for instance. Why? You thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? Didn't you? You won't be the first of your family who thought that. And you won't be the first to die because of it. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 7, Operation Monster Rainbow, first aired May 14th, 1971. 
While on a hike in the mountains near Nagano, Jiro snaps a photograph of Aki and Go. When it's developed, it reveals a kaiju looming in the background which had gone unnoticed, except for Go who had sensed a strange presence thanks to his connection to Ultraman. The monster attack team investigates, but the reaction is mixed. Some members believe Jiro's photograph is legitimate, but there's enough debate to leave the matter unresolved. Captain Kato does allow Go to remain and investigate for one more day. That night, Go runs across a camp in which young adults are partying and warns them that the area is dangerous. They don't take him seriously and pay the price as a giant creature's eyes appear and the monster breathes fire that sets their tent ablaze. M.A.T. returns to the valley where a rock-like monster emerges from the hillside, only to vanish before their eyes. Captain Kado and Oka hatch a plan called Operation Rainbow to spray the monster with paint that will prevent it from becoming transparent. However, their plan doesn't cover every eventuality and the monster proves to be a more resilient foe than first expected. Operation Monster Rainbow is a visually attractive episode set in the Jigokudani Valley with many of the scenes evidently filmed on location. Situated approximately 250 kilometers northwest of Tokyo near Nagano, the river valley provides a beautiful setting for this story and is renowned for its natural hot springs and snow monkeys. Once again, the theme of trust within MAT is explored, especially early on as Go advocates for Jiro, while other team members are not as quick to accept the child's word. For the first time in Return of Ultraman, the viewer might sense some ambivalence about the mission of MAT. Monster Gorbagos is the least destructive kaiju encountered thus far, doesn't attack unless provoked, and has a few endearing mannerisms that indicate he just wants to be left alone. It's too bad that the default setting is to eliminate him. At least, the final shot suggests he may have met a peaceful end. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. village in Switzerland lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started. Just opened the door. But now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it. Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, 
the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now, the monster was the master. Paul, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature. And see that you pay for these atrocities. No! is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. Oh, you must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's film, The Abominable Snowman, was not featured in FM, but one of its stars merited a two-part article about his career in FM 117 and 118, Peter Cushing. Let's look at part of his life and career where today's movie is mentioned. We learn an interesting fact. But his early training in art finally helped. 
When he was unable to buy his beloved wife a Christmas present, he painted old-time figures on a piece of silk and gave her this beautiful scarf. One night she wore it to a play in which Peter was appearing and a textile manufacturer admired the Christmas scarf. Peter was given a contract for nine months to design scarves and so kept the wolf from the door. Peter's qualities as an actor evidently attracted the attention of an associate of the great actor Laurence Olivier. Peter was given the important role of Osric the Messenger in Olivier's Academy Award-winning film of Hamlet, frequently on US TV. As fate would have it, although he didn't meet him then, apparently another young actor had a very small part in the same film, Christopher Lee. Olivier was impressed by Cushing, and Peter with Helen toured Australia with Olivier and his wife Vivian Lee. When they returned to England, the illness plagued Peter again became sick and was forced to leave the touring company. After he recovered, he and his wife wrote to over 50 TV producers seeking a job, and jobs he got. Between 1951 and 1975, he has appeared in over 50 TV shows. The most famous of these have included 1984, The Creature, in the movie version The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas, Peter repeated his TV role. Isaac Asimov's Caves of Steel, soon to be a movie, his guest appearances on The Avengers and Space 1999, and his own 1967 TV series, Sherlock Holmes. During his busy career on television, he won Best Actor Awards three times. The Daily Mail Television Award, 1953-54, the Guild Television Award, 1955, for 1984, and the News Chronicle Television Top Ten Award for 1956. And at this same time, film offers were coming in. His most important roles, until The Curse of Frankenstein, were probably those in The Black Knight, The End of the Affair, a role of which he is especially fond, and Time Without Pity. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. years ago, a land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man, secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, The Living Dead, Bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak. Until one night, he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. In the year 1860, I, Baron Frankenstein, was sentenced to death on the guillotine.
Why had the world condemned me? Because I was the first man to create another living being. The first unnatural man. But because his brain was affected, because he could not control his animal instincts, he was hunted down and brutally murdered. But I have escaped the guillotine and I shall avenge the death of my creation. Nobody. He isn't born yet. You will witness scenes never before seen on a motion picture screen. You will see Frankenstein take the eyes of one man, the brain of another. You will see lifeless hands begin to move. You will see a man turn into the world's most terrifying monster. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I haven't had this person on the show in a while. That seems to be a theme lately where I'm kind of reaching out to people that have been on the show, but it's been so long, and they haven't been part of Modern Security. It's been over a year, according to Skype, since the last time I chatted with them. So I'd like to welcome back to the show, Kelly Hogaboom. How are you doing, Kelly? Hello, Derek. Hello. Good afternoon. It is afternoon now. Daylight savings, yes. man. I know. It takes me like two days to get used to daylight savings, but I'm I'm on top now. I'm so. still yeah. I'm still dealing with this. Yeah, yeah. I, I who likes it. this? Who who really likes daylight savings? I don't, I, I don't know. We are not doing the uh, the daylight savings kid radio podcast. So <laughs> move on. Right, from right. That. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a cool movie, one that you recommended. But I want to catch up with you. Like I said, it's been over a year. What are you up to these days? Do you have anything podcasting wise oh or other online projects people can follow up with you on? I guess like I'd love people to follow me on Instagram. I'm just my name on Instagram, Kelly Hogaboom, all one word. I am a designer. I make garments and I have a cool project where I make clothes at no cost uh, for trans and gender nonconforming people. And that's called the Tiny Horror Hug Club because I am such a horror fan. And I want to point out, I don't make regular clothes. Like you got to look at my stuff and make amazing clothes. And I'm heavily influenced, Derek, by the 50s and 60s monster movies that were um, that are kind of your wheelhouse. I'm also kind of an 80s horror person. Uh, so that creeps in. 
But yeah, that's what I've been up to. I've been watching a lot of horror. I actually watched so much horror last month that I had nightmares. And so I was like, oh, I guess I do have a limit. Uh, so wow. I, I've been trying to, yeah, I've been trying to balance back and watch them. You know, I watched a drama last night, but um, yeah, I'm pretty much a full octane horror person. So Right on. My uh, fiance and I went to go see Lady on a Train, which is not a horror movie at all from 1945 last night at the Kicking Theater. So every once oh, in a while, okay. you know, man cannot live on horror movies alone as, as no. much as it kind of I cringe when I say that. Oh, Do you have a le- letterbox, Derek? I can't remember. I, I think about it. Um, but what would be the benefit of me having a letterbox? I, I guess I like it to so like because when I do a guest on a podcast and someone says what have you been watching I just pull up my letterbox and I can see and if there's a, something I've watched that's relevant to the podcast I can talk about it because it's kind of hard when you someone puts you on the spot when you watch a lot of stuff you're like uh, I've been watching a lot I don't know and I'd love to follow you on letterboxd I'd love to follow you because then I'd see what you're up to I know at one point I think Kenny was the man was the guy behind it doing a monster kid radio letterbox kind of keeping track uh, all the stuff that we've covered on the show. That's but, cool. But uh, I, I haven't done it myself. I have an old school Google Doc where I keep track of all the movies that I watch. And I did that because a lot of the movies that I watch are like short films that I see at a film festival or something like that. Right, right. Which wouldn't be in exactly. Letterboxd anyway. Exactly. But, yeah. you know. And Letterboxd doesn't have TV either, I don't believe. But, um, you know, they it also is just pleasing visually. Letterboxd is pleasing to look at. So, so I don't know if they have a WordPress plugin, but when they do, I'm going to put that on my website for you sure. You should look into that. What is your website address? Uh, <laughs> for what? I do so much stuff. <laughs> well, I want to make uh, sure there's links in the show notes for everybody. So Okay. I would just link me to my regular, which is my brand name, which is bespokehogaboom.com okay. and, um, or bmoviebffs.com. Either one of those will work. Okay. I'll make sure there's links to that, uh, your Instagram <laughs> It looks like you've got a bio link as well, if that's still Oh, yeah, current. tons of so, stuff. I, yeah, I do too much stuff. Too so, much stuff. Yeah. Right on. Well, when we were talking about movies to cover, you brought up The Abominable Snowman. We're talking about the 1957 film. I hope, because that's the one I watched again. <laughs> right. Yes, we are. Yeah. The good the, one. I mean, there's some really bad Yeti movies out there. You know, I was looking at some things online, and I really like Trailers from Hell, the Joe Dante Project okay, in. yeah. He did uh, an episode on The Abominable Snowman, and he said the exact same thing. There are a ton of Yeti movies. This is the good one. I mean, it's kind of like werewolf movies. Like, um, there, I, I've watched many. I like many. But when it comes to, like, a truly excellent werewolf film, the list is kind of short. It's tough. You know, and I, you know me. People know me. I love these movies, even the so-called bad ones. I, I love right. Monos and Hands of Fate. So, you know, I love these movies. It doesn't matter to me if it's considered good or bad. If I'm enjoying it, then it's a good movie as far as I'm concerned. There you go. So, yeah, I watch things like Man Beast and Snow Beast and all that. And I, you know, I enjoy them. But this one is really it's good. so good. It's good. I like. It's weird because I feel like people don't know about it or talk about it very much. And, like, I don't hear people talking about it often. And yet it's so well done. It really is. And it really is, like, in concert with the Trollenberg Terror for sure. me, for obvious reasons, right? And I love the Trollenberg Terror as well. Sure. This is a Hammer film, and I think for people who aren't in it the way that we are, whenever we say, hey, this is a Hammer film, they're like, oh, really? You don't really expect this to be coming out of Hammer in the 50s. Because when yeah. you think 50s Hammer, you start thinking about Frankenstein, Dracula, laying the groundwork for all the gothic stuff they would do in the late 50s and early 60s. But this one, it's directed by Val Guest, who's, you know, a Hammer 
Quatermass, guy, yeah. You know, it's Nigel Neal. You know, again, Quatermass, which I love the Quatermass films. I know you do, yeah. so good. This one reminds me, the first time I saw it, it reminded me of a Twilight Zone uh, episode Uh that was just long. And then I did see that it was based off a television teleplay. Um, And I don't know much about television. I didn't have one growing up and all of that. But it does, it's like right in between a a film and a TV, a good Twilight Zone episode for me. That's kind of how this one hits for me. I used to do that Hammer Films podcast with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell, uh, 1951 Down Place rest in peace and we talked about this movie back then and that came up is that it felt like an elongated twilight zone episode where it kind of starts one way and then there's a a sci-fi twist kind of creeping in and yeah it really does have that vibe which you know i don't think nigel neal would be disturbed by hearing i still have not seen the tv play i don't know if it exists anymore but it's it's able to be seen but I bet there's like a radio version floating around out there somewhere. That'd be amazing. And Peter Cushing is in both. Yeah. He, okay. So, of course, the great Peter Cushing. I'm just more and more of a fan every time I see or rewatch something of his. Yeah. I, I adore him. Of course, I'm vegan. He was a vegetarian most of his life. So that also endears me <laughs> quite a bit, actually. That goes a long way with me. Um, he is a total gentleman. It's funny. I, I don't know if I learned this on your podcast or where I learned it, but uh, apparently he one of his acting tricks was to pick things up and, and be touching mm-hmm. something while he acted. And now that someone told me that, I really notice it, that he's always fiddling with a pipe or, you know, the reliquary or whatever. But it's a good trick, right? You don't, you're not just sitting there like Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights not knowing what to do with your hands, right? right? So, right. Um, but he's just so classic, and he he's like a soothing presence for me to watch. I just adore him. Hot props cushing is what they would call him, because he would always find okay. something to fiddle with. And I do remember back when I did that Hammer Films podcast, reading somewhere that there was a scene in this film where all the dialogue was done, but Cushing is still messing with stuff and he's still picking up things off the desk and pulling out a file and starts filing a nail with it and just like, what what are you <laughs> Yeah. What are you doing? They're just waiting for you to stop so they can say cut, you know, just <laughs> right. we're done. Yeah. We're, we're good. Well, but you know, um I, weirdly, this is so strange, but on Instagram I keep getting interviews with Michael Caine the actor and he he shares some of the craft and um he was talking about eye contact and not blinking and uh then he did a demonstration and and i was thinking you know there's a lot to the craft that we don't notice as a um audience member because if if you really think about it someone always fiddling with stuff you would be like settle down man sit down but in a performance it keeps the dialogue from getting stale it's it's actually kind of subtle again once you notice it though you kind of really will notice that Peter Cushing is always fiddling, right? Right. But he, he does it so well. I could watch Cushing do anything. I am yeah. such a fan. I've made no secret about this. Peter Cushing is the man. And is one, one of man. my favorite things lately has been sharing some of these movies that I love so much with my fiance, who may not have seen a lot of these classic monster movies and all that. And anytime I have an opportunity to share Cushing with her, oh, man, I just, I'm yeah. ecstatic. She's a nerd. She's a geek. You know, she's a Star Wars girl and all that. So she knows Cushing from from that. But I don't know if we've watched any or she's watched any of the Dracula or Frankensteins yet. Like, I can't yeah. wait to share that with her. Just, I was going to say, yeah. you have this whole world to share together. Oh, man. Yeah. I and can't then we've wait. got Forrest Tucker, who I also like. Oh, but yeah. I point out, I've only seen him in about two or three films, but I totally like him. I liked him in the Trollenberg Terror, and I like him in this film as well. 
He's fantastic in that. He really is. You know, I think a lot of American audiences, they know him from like F Troop, that sort of thing, right? right? So to have the, this kind of serious portrayal in this movie. Yeah, like, um, so I don't know anything about F Troop except for the MST3K jokes that came out of um, The Creeping Eye. Uh, but I guess it was comedy. I don't know. But you wouldn't know that based on Tucker's performance in this. And I believe he was, he got his start in vaudeville when he was a teenager. So he oh. has, yeah, he has quite a range. I also have to laugh because um, there was a scene where they were talking about how big the Yeti must be and by the footprints, I think. And someone said, oh, he must be seven or eight feet tall. And I was like, was well, it Forrest Tucker about seven foot tall? Because <laughs> um, Peter Cushing, I think, is six foot one and, and Forrest Tucker towers over him. And I looked it up and Forrest Tucker was six foot five. That is a tall, tall Oh, my. Man. Yeah. Oh, he's taller yeah. than me. I'm a big and his hair. His hair gives him an inch at least. Yeah, right? would have to. Yeah, would have to. So yeah. Wow. He's good in this, and he plays the um that blustery, boorish American. Um, but it's not a lampooning performance. It's just really well done. And I understand that they intentionally decided to cast an American so that they could sell it to the American audiences. You know, that's a big part of the distribution and all that. And that's yeah. that's. You see that in horror movies. You see that in the spaghetti westerns of the 60s and 70s. They, they would always cast an American so they could sell it overseas. But it didn't feel like, well, we just had access to an American. Let's just throw him in. They, they got a guy who really knew what he was doing. He, he's enjoyable to watch. He is. No, I agree. And, like, um, you know, of course, there there's a, a fair bit of racism in this film. Like, like if you have the continuum, I'd, I'd call it about a 4 out of 10. You know, they, they're not. it's not too awesome how they treat the indigenous, you know, people. However... The way that Forrest Tucker is bossing around everybody, he bosses around Peter Cushing's wife, uh, Maureen Connell, uh, her character, as I think her name was Helen. So he instantly is telling her, you know, go give me some more food or whatever. He blows his cigar, cigarette smoke in people's faces when he talks. He barks out orders. And I honestly felt like it was the perfect performance for a guy of that era. Like, it's like that he was, he wasn't like a huge, huge jerk. But you wouldn't want to hang out with them. Like he was, he was a bore, really. He definitely was displaying some of those uh, ugly American tropes. But yeah. there's still a charisma there, which makes me kind oh, of absolutely feel squicky inside to say. <laughs> no, no, he is. But, he is. You know, he, he is a charismatic. I mean, he's a leader. Um, like I said, it was. It's very much of the era, and I really liked how he and Cushing. Because Cushing is has, of course, he brings he brings class to like every role, right? With sure. he's a villain, yeah. So he, you know, he he kind of you can tell he kind of doesn't like this guy, but um, they don't have a fight, uh, and it actually gets a little physical, right? They have a little scuffle, right? Um, but that doesn't happen till well into the film when they are in a stressful situation because Cushing is just kind of putting up with this guy that's kind of a jerk. So overall, it's an expedition in the Himalayas. Uh, Cushing's already there and he's joined by what was his name? Friend, Tom Friend, played by Forrest Tucker and a few other Americans, and they go looking for the abominable snowman. I, I don't know how in depth the the plot really is, because things they're up on a mountain, they're looking for the a Yeti. Well, you know, this is a bit of an early eco horror, if you ask me. Yes, I could see that. I could see that. Because you know, seventies is the big era of eco horror. And, but if you think about this, you've got this llama character played by a German actor, I want to add, 
uh, this llama <laughs> who says basically, okay, I don't think you should go up there, but go ahead. You're welcome to it. He's pretty sure that they're all going to get killed because he knows something that the Americans and the British don't know. And um, they, you know, Peter Cushing ends up being the only survivor and he makes the decision to keep his trap shut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's very, there's a little bit of kind of colonialism and, and the rejection of like mankind wanting to exploit, you know, nature. That, uh, Cushing, you know, sort of believes he's in it for the science and Forrest Tucker is saying, listen, um, that won't work anymore. You can't just write little, learn." he says learned books, right? Yeah. These guys writing these little books. He's basically saying we need to go on TV, we need to run around and um you know make a circus out of this and i think it gets <laughs> revealed that uh tucker has done this before in a fraudulent way like he's not he's not a good guy like he there was some other wolf boy or something that he he essentially faked <laughs> so um those themes those themes work today sure like even though this is an not an overly serious film. It had some cool themes to it. And it's something that Hammer would dip into again, too, with some of the later mummy movies that they would do, where they'd have right. the, the brash American showman wanting to exploit what they dug out of a tomb somewhere, and, and all the other characters, the British characters around them, knowing full well, I've seen a mummy movie, I know what's supposed to happen here, knowing full well that this is not going to end well for anybody. Right. You know, it, it's something that Hammer would do. It's something that had been done prior to this, King Kong. You know, it's it's very... It's a timeless thing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And gosh, Cushing just is so amazing. Right, just, because at yeah. first he thinks, it, he's like, oh, it's scientific curiosity, but by the end of the film, he regrets being a part of this essentially, you know, exploitive mission. Well, and he kind of falls, he gets seduced by the whole thing, too. He kind of falls victim to it as well. Yeah. His wife doesn't want him to go. Yeah. And there's that tension at the beginning when he's talking to friend, he's talking to the to the locals, and the wife kind of is not happy about everything that's developing. She knows that he, her husband's going to take off. But she never flat out says, no, don't go. But there's still that tension. And I really like yeah. that, too. The chemistry between the two of them uh, was Peter Cushing and uh, Maureen O'Connell. Really good. And they don't they don't mention what his previous accident was. He said he had a silly accident, but a bad one. Uh -huh. So Peter Cushing has injured himself before, and I think that's his wife's objection is the danger. She doesn't really care about the Yeti one way or another at first. Um, so some of the other cast, did you recognize uh, the Trapper? Did you know you've seen him before? Um, Robert Brown? Oh, yeah. No, he's great. He was uh, M uh, in Bond movies. He was... <laughs> He I was M in the very first James Bond movie I ever saw, Octopussy. It was Octopussy, yep. yeah. The classic. Yeah, yeah. So he was M. I was like, because I was looking at him, like, I recognize him. Um, and then we had uh, Wolf Morris, the, who plays, oh, what's the guide's name? Uh, I can't remember. Kusang, something like that. Kusang, yeah. yeah. So what a great name, Wolf Morris. He was in um, The House That Dripped Blood. He just played the the waxworks owner I, in the amicus film i don't know if you saw that one but I have, yeah. oh, you must have seen it yeah, yeah, yeah of course you've seen it so um we've got what a cool name the wolf oh it's a great e, name and he did some yeah. other things for hammer as well camp on blood island which is not a horror movie even though it's got a great title uh i haven't seen that it, one. it's uh one of their world war ii films uh -huh. it's andre morales in it he's great but yeah he's yeah. done a handful of those uh he did appear in a sherlock holmes movie at one point as well i don't remember what role he played 
but I know he did a Sherlock Holmes film, uh, one of the more comedic takes in the 70s. Um, but yeah, no, he's great too. Um, I really liked him and you know, the name is fantastic. Yeah. And then we had, so Richard Wattis um, plays Foxy, who is kind of the nerdier, um, and I, I feel like a queer-coded character, right? He's the nerdier professor who uh, makes tea and kind of dithers around and stays at their base camp. Uh, he looked really familiar to me. I don't know where else I've seen him. Um, and, you know, he there. I thought he was going to get killed off, but he doesn't. He, he and, and the wife are safe um, in there. Uh, monastery or wherever they're staying. First time I saw this, I thought the same thing. I thought, Man. yeah, he's um, he's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is ill equipped yeah. to be up here. Uh, he's as a character, he's kind of two faced in some things. Of, oh, I really like the cold, and then a few minutes later, I can't wait to get out of here. I hate the cold. You know, just oh, he says some straight up racist yeah. stuff. I'm, now I'm remembering. Yeah, and also like the kind of fussy. Fussy Professor does end up getting killed off in these adventure sci-fi films right. from the 50s, 60s. So I thought he was a goner. But instead, they gave that little fussy role to the, was it the photographer? Uh, uh, and I didn't recognize him, so I might have to pull him up. But he, uh, oh man, I can't remember his name. He gets like caught in a bear trap <laughs> um, without teeth but it probably like fractured his shin or something yeah, right you would think. and then yeah. after that happens he just kind of loses it right he just kind of uh collapses into you know uselessness and then he the photographer who's laid up um with his injured leg he's the one who sees the first physical sighting of the yeti and i i want to talk to you about that scene what did you think oh it's fantastic i think the yeti the the slow reveal of the yeti oh, is fantastic I agree. I think the, yeah. the character design is great, yeah, and the way they tease it, you, you see the tracks, Healy here talking about it, whatever, you see the, the paw coming in. That scene scared me the first time yeah? I saw it. Yeah, and by the way, I wasn't a kid. It was like a 10 years ago. I Because um, <laughs> they it's halfway through the film, and all you've seen are tracks, and um, all of a sudden, there's this, it's actually the sound that scared me, because he's in the tent. And you hear this unnerving sort of tapping and scratching, mm -hmm. very quiet. You know, if this was an American film, um, especially the kind of American films I watched from the 80s, like the preacher would bust in and tear the guy's head off. <laughs> but right. instead, it's this like tap, tap, scratch. And then this hand slowly, that really reminded me of the Twilight Zone, this hand and the hand is great. And I, I'm guessing you're probably more um, educated than I am on this. I'm guessing they had some prop uh, rifles that were made at like two thirds scale or something because the hand is so big um, and it looks really good. Like the hand that comes in is a man's hand in, you know, monster costume, but the guns are small compared to the hand. I don't know. It was a really good special effect. I haven't really thought that. about that, but yeah. you're right. I wonder. Yeah. They definitely established the size with just the hand, and that was well done. And I just, that was creepy. Like, even my husband, he watched this, he rewatched this with me last night. He said that, he's like, yeah, that scene was creepy. It's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to just, while we're talking, I was just kind of skimming a couple of resources that I have here. I can't find anything about the size of the rifle, but I would not be surprised. Yeah, I should I should bring this to my little special effects podcast I go on every now and then with Eric Moore, the Effectively Speaking, because he probably knows all the answers. Yeah. But 
Um, but yeah, so and also I have to I have to say there was a part of this plot that reminded me of Attack of the Crab Monsters, <laughs> which <laughs> is not such a good film, but I love it. Like, oh, I, I love, love that. Yeah, very dearly. Yes. Well, <clears throat> if you remember the crab monsters, once they ate somebody, they could then telepathically use their voice. Oh, to, I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the yeti, the yeti isn't eating these men, but he's able to, or he or she or whatever, is able to like project, and um. It also reminded me of crab monsters because in crab monsters they made one claw out of paper mache and i feel like they kind of made one yeti arm for this movie because you see the yeti arm a couple times and you um you don't really see the full yeti body in this film uh you see it sort of backlit at the end right yeah i think i think you're probably right and you know it's a cost saving thing or whatever do what you kind of do oh yeah but it's so well done even with the cost saving pop probably you know and also the set pieces i really like the set pieces in this film i do too and that's something that hammer's known for right that's true yeah gorgeous set work to gorgeous production design i believe bernard robinson was responsible for this as well which again we associate him uh with Dracula's Castle, Frankenstein's Lab, all that stuff. You know, you don't normally associate him with with something like this. Everything in the village is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And even when you're up in the tents and the mountains and all that, it still looks great. Even the scene where they overlay some sort of animation or whatever to indicate snow, the snow, Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, it still looks pretty good. It still looks pretty good. And there's that, uh, you know, this is obviously well before CGI, um, but the the practicality of the sets are are nice like it it doesn't give a low budget vibe at all it's very very uh dignified I, production i agree with you 100 percent. it doesn't feel like something that didn't have the biggest of budgets and i don't know if it's because it's in black and white that if i feel like it can kind of yeah, get away with helps. more yeah uh, and then again part of it's the, the quality of the the cast mm-hmm. you know, cushing is a minister of what he does and forrest tucker mm-hmm. is fantastic this is Cushing's first work for Hammer Films. It's not the oh, first really? film to come out. Uh, Curse of Frankenstein was released first, but this is uh, what it was produced was... second. I, it, I don't okay. know why they did it that way. It was distribution, whatever. But yeah, this is the first time he actually worked for Hammer. And man, they 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 had to know they had a master on their hands. Yeah. You know, bringing back it, his Frankenstein like, yeah. and Van Helsing. I agree. The cast, everybody does really well, and especially the principal, you know, Forrest Tucker and Peter Cushing. And I have to say, just on a personal note, I've always loved adventure sci-fi or just straight up adventure. Like I used to read um, Treasure Island like once or twice a year growing up. Nice. Uh, And, you know, this obviously has that light sci-fi horror aspect to it, but it is essentially kind of, you know, it's an adventure film. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the these high mountain peaks the actual story is just as scary people try to climb these mountains then they die and they just leave their bodies there like there are bodies all over these peaks because they can't use the resources to schlep somebody back down yeah so the the actual horror of some of this these remote mountainscapes is actually quite spooky it's like, it's terrifying story. you know you start yeah. thinking about the amount of corpses uh-huh. <laughs> along the way to the top of Mount Everest and things like that. Have you ever seen pictures of Mallory's body? No, I have not. Yeah, so you know who Mallory, I mean, everyone knows who that is. Well, they found his body. It's still up there. You can look it up. George Mallory, he's got his, um, he's on his face and his body is still quite preserved and you can see his skin and that stuff is scary. Like, um, it's scary without a Yeti being involved. I'm not going to look that up because... Uh, okay. 
you want to sleep tonight? Well, so. it's less that and more. I have a tendency to look up weird things for my writing on Google. So my Google algorithms and Facebook algorithms are already screwed up enough. Um, <laughs> as I said in a recent panel interview, um, you start getting weird things when you start typing in things like, uh, how much does human blood cost? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't need You're to... You're going to be on some list somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure I already am. So... But the idea that there are all these corpses up there that have just been left behind, because like you said, they don't have the resources for it. Global warming, man, that that's the stuff starts thawing out. I don't I don't want to be anywhere near that. Oh my gosh, right. <laughs> Plus it's also there's that colonialism and imperialism because these wealthy, you know, Western or European or American, they climb these mountains, they just litter. They just dump their old supplies, they drop their oxygen tanks like there is an ecological, like imperialist aspect to this story that is very real. And, um, and, you know, like we're just taking our junk up there and dropping it so that we can say we climbed a mountain. So, you know, not to get too deep with an <laughs> abominable snowman movie, but, um, you know, that the ecological part is real. The colonialism is real. I, you're right. And I think that's one of the things that I love about these movies is that we can see it's a great story. It's a great adventure. <laughs> There's some really cool stuff in it, the, the sci-fi element creeping in. It's not just a monster movie. You know, we have, we talked about Twilight Zone and Nigel Neal is, you know, a master of yeah. his craft as well. But then we can also look and see these other elements creeping in. Um, that's why I love these movies so much. That's why I love talking about these movies mm -hmm. with people who have a different point of view or different experience. Hadn't even considered uh, the fact that this could be an eco-horror, like a proto-eco-horror. Yeah. Didn't even think about that, but it totally is. And I do know that actual monasteries, uh, some monasteries do have um, physical items they claim are from the Yeti. Mm -hmm. uh, they like that the reliquary part that had a carved tooth like that. There is a reality in that, too, that there are some monasteries that are like, we've got a Yeti scalp. It's a sacred object like that's actually quite real. I'm not saying the Yeti is real. I'm saying that there are uh, monasteries that have supposed remains. Um, so there's a little, there's enough factual basis in the story to make it pretty fun, actually. I, yeah. I'm, yeah. I also noticed on a lighter note, um, yeah. Peter Cushing smokes Lucky Strikes. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I used to smoke those. Yeah. yeah. Smoked for 17 years. Lucky Strikes. No filter. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They're hardcore. Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I he smoked he smoked cigarettes and he smoked the pipe. But um, it was Forrest Tucker who actually died of lung cancer. Um, I think uh, Cushing died from prostate cancer, if I remember. But lots of smoking in these movies, right? Lots of smoking. But yeah, that was the thing, right? It was nobody. Yes, it was. You know, that there wasn't the concern. There wasn't any of that. So doctors doctors were in ads for cigarettes back then, right? Uh, so Pretty the, wild. The Flintstones were pimping them, so you know. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, That's... yeah. There's like a, a an old school, I believe it's a, front, a Flintstone commercial where they're promoting cigarette. Like, it's a commercial there. It's like spokespersons for it. Oh, yeah. That just makes me sad. Oh, yeah, pretty God. sure. Pretty sure. Oh, geez. Kid <laughs> stuff. Um, I have a question about a scene. I don't know if you remember it. And I, I had this question when I wa first watched the movie. Maybe one of your listeners. There is a scene where it's just down to three survivors. Mm -hmm. So you've got um, the the trapper, uh, Shelley, I think is his name, played by Robert Brown. Really? And you've got Forrest Tucker and Peter Cushing. And the trapper is getting kind of like wound up and he's like, I want action. We need to go after this thing. 
and they make the plan to have the the net and have the trapper sit in the in the cave. And there's this look, like as the trapper, as Shelly is kind of like rambling and all manic about it, Forrest Tucker and Peter Cushing give each other this look. And it is definitely a significant moment. And I couldn't tell what they were trying to communicate. Because it, like, uh, Forrest Tucker almost looks sad for a minute. And Peter Cushing looks very grave. I don't know. It's like a notable moment. And I want someone to tell me what it meant. Well, if I remember right, and I, I mean, I just watched this movie this morning, um, Again, it's been a while since I had seen it. They don't give Shelly live rounds, right? Well, Forrest Tucker doesn't, but Peter Cushing would never have let that happen. So it's not a look of understanding between the two of them because Peter Cushing would not have would not have allowed that to happen, right? So I that's because that was my first thought too because they're basically sending him to his doom, but. Uh, um, Cushing was not in on that. That was Forrest Tucker being evil. Yeah, so I didn't. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, yeah, Cushing, you know, his character, Rollison would not have stood for that. I don't know. I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch it. Do they? I don't, I don't think Rollison would have been. You know, Cushing's character would have been down with, you know, sacrificing him or whatever. I mean, I know they're setting no, him up as bait, think so. but it's definitely. It's definitely a deliberate moment, and I just can't figure out what it might have meant. Um, and my husband was falling asleep while we were watching this, so I don't think he was there for that part. Like I kept waking him up. I'm like, "Come on, like finish the movie!" But oh, he was too sleepy. <laughs> so yes, of course, you know, um, then you're down to three survivors at this point. Forrest Tucker does the evil thing of not putting live rounds, and then. Uh, Shelly actually dies from fright. Yeah. Which is a real thing that can happen, which should scare everybody. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're already up there in the mountains. You've already got, your body's already taxed, right? Oh, yeah. You're already dealing with uh, thinning oxygen. You're dealing with the temperature, exposure, all of that. A good scare, too. Yeah, I, I, I'd be done in if I could even make it that far. So, yeah. Right. I don't think I could. Yeah. Because uh, the wife uh, gathers up some of the guides and mounts a rescue mission i'm like she must be in pretty good shape because i could maybe do a half a mile climb yeah if, if that <laughs> like, if that for me yeah i yeah. i who am i kidding i <laughs> i'd get winded it's looking at the mountain okay <laughs> it just looks it looks miserable like it's one thing to hike in pleasant weather when you're just wearing a tank top and it's you know sunny out it's another thing to hike wearing 18 layers of whatever and you're sweaty and your face is freezing oh my god right no. But it's good that she does mount the rescue mission. They they do recover the one survivor. Right. So when you first saw, do you remember? Because I thought Peter Cushing was dead. Yeah. At that when she finds him, because he's he's basically strung up. It's quite ghoulish. Yeah, I thought so too. That you know the yeti basically returned the body. You know. Yeah. But it kind of kind of like a f you right. Right. He's like he kind of crucifies him. Right. Yeah. But no, he does so, survive. He does make it to the end. Uh, and I, I love that that ending where he's telling the llama, the, the villagers, what I was searching for, it just isn't there. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So, so what was he looking for? You know, redemption in some way? You know, wasn't he wasn't looking there for monsters. He was looking for, you know, an advancement in science. It just, it's it's kind of heady, but still. Yeah, it is. But again, it's still a great monster movie too on top of everything else. I, thinking about it, does the Yeti actually commit any violence besides the last survivor, like nailing the survivor? 
because the Yeti doesn't attack anyone. It gets trapped and it, Bernard Shelley, Robert Brown, okay. he dies of fright, but I don't think the Yeti, Yeti actually hurts anyone. You know, it's the King Kong thing again. You know, if we just left it alone, right? right. you know, everybody would have been fine, yep. but no, you know, it's, yeah. and yeah, this is such a great film. I love, yeah, I have kinda... to say it. I have to say it because I always do. I love the music. I love those oh, yeah. huge bells the score being is very used. Good. I assume they're like some yep. sort of tubular bell setup. Um, just not the tubular bells by Mike Holdfield, but it, it's like this that had that kind of tubular bell sound worked into the score. I loved that. And also, when they were in the village by the monastery, there were some people playing music, some kind of stringed instrument. Mm-hmm. And that was like kind of a hustle bustle scene. And that was very pretty, that music kind of floating in. Mm-hmm. That this film has got great atmosphere. It's got a great tone. It's not a fast-paced film. No. It's not a horror, like an American horror film. You don't get to see a Yeti tear anyone apart. Um, you don't see any sign of a monster for halfway through the film. So I maybe that's why you don't hear people talking about this movie that much. But I just think it's so well done. Like, just awesome. It's a lot of fun. It is a slow burn, but I still had a lot of fun with it. All the stuff in the village, you were talking about the different music and all that. And again, it, it illustrates the difference between the British and the American party there when the American guys, I got to get a picture of this and pushing from the back. No, no, no. They don't allow it. Put that camera down. Thank you for bringing that up because also earlier when he's talking to the llama in one of the first scenes, he takes out a cigarette and then he says, do you permit? And he asks the llama permission. Mm-hmm. So there are these signs that Cushing is a more respectful Westerner. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like he he's not blowing smoke in people's faces or ordering his wife around or anything like that. So, but yes, he does say they don't permit it. I actually really liked that line. He, he's like, show some respect, dude. Yeah. Yeah, that was very cool. And I, I imagine that's a holdover from the original television production. Uh, and I don't know if it was commentary on the British filmmakers part talking about the uh, brash Americans or not. I don't know, but it just is a neat illustration of the differences between the two. Yeah. Cause you know, the British, of course, what they had the biggest colonizing, uh, you know, history of all time. <laughs> yeah. That said, you know, it's, it's a little bit more about the, just the individual men themselves and their characters, right? Yeah. You know, Forrest Tucker's just a certain type of guy. And, and I agree with you. He's charismatic. It's, he's not played as a villain. He's just kind of a, I keep thinking of a word that starts with D. It's got four letters. He's just kind of a jerk, you know? <laughs> and um, But like you say, he's charismatic. And it's kind of funny when I looked up his height this morning. Apparently, he's blonde. I can't, can't tell it because it's a black and white film, huh. you know? But apparently, he was blonde. So, you know, he's a handsome, rugged, kind of John Wayne-esque type of guy. Sure. And uh, he, he's per- cast was perfect in this. Sure. He's he's very overly ambitious. Yeah, overly he's, ambitious. He's the yeah, he's the the quarter main type of guy, right? Right, yeah. which again, classic adventure fiction, you know. Yes, and that's what this this movie really feels like. That, and I've been thinking a lot about like adventure fiction and action, yes, adventure storytelling and that sort of thing lately. Um, for whatever reason, I'm not writing anything like that or anything like this. It's something that come up in some of the research I've done for other things. I'm not as familiar with that genre as I feel like I should be. Oh, because the few I things that it. I've watched and read, I've loved. Me too. I, um, I a few years ago I was in an art installation and I did a fiber arts version of uh, Jim Hawkins in the Apple Barrel because that that's when he hears he finds that Long John Silver is a is a 
bad guy. As a child, real tears, Derek. I had real tears coursing down my cheeks when I, because I loved Long John Silver, right? And so I've watched just about every Treasure Island there is, and a lot of them aren't that great. Um, you know, I love Moby Dick. That's a much darker story, but I love, love, love adventure fiction. And I feel like in American cinema today, we go for these really bombastic special effects and we go for these big name actors, but that spirit of adventure is not as easy to find. And so I'm always looking for it because um, I love it. I was, I raised myself reading those kind of books. Right on. Like the uh, A Voyage to a Journey to the Center of the Earth, that kind of stuff. Just love it. Love it. Yeah. And actually, the listeners, if I can pull the curtain back a little bit, this is not the only recording I have scheduled today. I have a recording coming up, and you may hear it before or after. I don't know where it's going to end up in the lineup with uh, Mark Holmes, who's going to be coming back to the show, and we're going to be talking about At the Earth's Core. So, Perfect. So I got a, a double feature of Peter Cushing today. So, Lucky man, you've right? done exactly what and you right, want to do. I did that on purpose. Um, but again, that's another one of those adventure-type stories. There's some monster stuff in it, but it's it's this action-adventure. They're on a mission, on a quest. It's just great, and it's... Cushing, and I'm going to save all that until I record with Mark. I don't know. Are you a Lord of the Rings, the films fan? Uh, I do. I haven't watched them in forever. My fiance loves them. She's a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. I th- I think that's why I love those. You know, I, those came out 21, two years oh, ago because I was very pregnant, God. I remember. But I, there was that spirit of adventure. You know, of course, there's the lore and the, you know, the Tolkien stuff. But ultimately, these are adventure stories and they hit that note for me in such a great way and I I think I'm always chasing those kind of stories so the abominable snowman of course is a much more modest adventure story but it still really is an adventure story and I just I just love that that that's some a genre I do adore it's an adventure story with sci-fi and horror trappings you've got the monsters in it the yetis look great and I do agree with Joe Dante this is probably the best abominable snowman movie yeti movie so far yeah. That, let let that be a challenge. Any nascent filmmakers out there, we are thirsty for another good Yeti film because hey, there's not enough. There we go. Chris Mim, Josh Kennedy, you're listening. Let's do it. I want yeah. to see a, a, a Yeti movie through your lens. That's what I want to say. Oh, and by the way, I've made a lot of Yeti. I made a baby outfit with a that's a Yeti outfit, and it's got the claws and everything. And like that, someone in New York bought it, and it's out there somewhere, Derek. So I've made a lot of like Yeti stuff because I I just. Like I like monsters, yeah, just like you, monster kid. Well, you know, we wouldn't be friends if he didn't. So so true, so true. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't have met you if if you didn't. So I wouldn't be on your podcast getting excited about a dusty old Yeti movie if I wasn't a monster kid at heart. <laughs> and I want to make one more comment, yeah. which is you talked about that action adventure. I think that's one reason that the Hound of the Baskervilles is one of the most popular Holmes stories. Because there is that element of action and adventure that isn't in other Sherlock Holmes stories. And you even have a horror slash supernatural component that, of course, gets debunked. But, like, why do we love Hound of the Baskervilles? I think I think it's that the little bit's got a little bit of teeth and claws, right? I've, I've often wondered about that because Hammer only did the one Sherlock right, Holmes which movie, is so good. Which is great. You know, Hound of the Basketballs is yeah. fantastic. And Cushing's an amazing Sherlock Holmes. He did it on television for years, and he was fantastic in that, too. And, I mean, he's one of my favorites. Uh, I'd say he's probably one of the best uh, when it comes to playing that character. But you're right. Yeah, Hammer only did the one. And maybe it is because it does have the action adventure and the, the whiff of supernatural stuff going on. It does. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's got it's in a remote location. Like there's it just kind of is the perfect. I mean, I like I've I've read all the Sherlock Holmes stories, and I've even read other authors who tried tried their hand at it. But um, I always love that one. I have to laugh too because I remember Christopher Lee uh, saying that he. He said it was the only time he got to play a romantic lead. And I'm like, yeah, you were a little rapey, dude. <laughs> like, you weren't, <laughs> you weren't as romantic as you think. But great movie. Love all the tweed. There's just gallons and gallons of tweed in that film. Um, and, of course, the wonderful, wonderful Peter oh, Cushing. Cushing's just fantastic. I, like I said earlier, I could watch Cushing do anything. I really could. Yep. We are in agreement just, there. Just anything <clears throat> he wants to do, you know. Even he, he does do some... Uh, Corruption is kind of tough to watch, but you know I still love him. Oh yeah, I still yeah, love I him. Yeah, I haven't seen that one in forever. It's, actually, as yeah, I'd say it's not a woman's picture, which is yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why. I don't know if that's well, a, a selling point or not. I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, you gotta gotta get a paycheck, you know. So yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, maybe best forgotten about. Yeah. But of course, I own it on Blu-ray because. Of yeah, course, you're I do. Because you're a completist. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've watched it once since I picked it up on Blu-ray. That's it. There you go. Well, my other my podcast I do with Tim Turner. We he always we do four films at a time. He always always makes me watch some Jallo, and it's so if I can if I can watch Jallo, I can sit through a exploitation film that Peter Cushing's in. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I don't tend to go down the Jallo hole no, very much. I don't get it. It's not. I don't get it all. You know, it's it's just. <laughs> Not one of the ones that I respond to, subgenres I respond to, but something yeah, like this I certainly will. Yeah. Um, and talking about them with friends is always the best thing about these movies for me. And something that I've been really trying to focus on lately with Monster Kid Radio, especially as I bring people on, because there are a limited amount of classic monster movies to talk about. When I bring somebody on who wants to talk about a movie that I've previously talked about, that's cool by me because it's a whole different experience hearing about how you first saw it 10 years ago and these certain he's terrifying you it's a different conversation that i had with scott and casey you know years ago on the hammer films podcast i used to do and that's what i love about these movies is, is hearing about people's backgrounds and fandom and where that comes from so i had no idea that you were into like action adventure type fiction and oh yeah the treasure island thing that's i had no i would not have even guessed to be honest yeah. kelly i would have no idea yeah. of course now yeah. i've got the muppet singing cat and fever rubbing through my head part of that is sort of gender stuff you know i'm non-binary as i grew up um you know definitely kind of relegated to the women the women and girls section and action adventure for me you know i was definitely relating to jim hawkins right i was wanting to be on that ship and um, and also, I have to say, there's something about the decency and camaraderie of the of the men in these kind of films. I always think of Dracula. You know, that was another book I really loved. And even though the men in Dracula keep screwing up and keep leaving Lucy by herself, right? Um, ultimately, it was a film about this camaraderie between these adventure type men. And I just I love that kind of stuff. And like I said, in American cinema today, we we kind of focus on the single hero and we focus on the explosions and I want to see that camaraderie. I want to see men working together um, okay. or women or non-binary people, but sure. yeah, just, just so people big, working big together. Fan. Yeah. I... People, you know, kind of um, on that mission and lifting one another up. And yeah, that is, that gets me, that's about the soft as I get for film. Cause most I'm watching people hit, cut their heads off with meat cleavers and stuff and my horror stuff. So yeah, I've got a soft side, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> And if people want to see that soft side, follow you on Instagram. 
Yes, follow me on Instagram. And thank you so much, Derek. Like this film is fun. Your by the way, your podcast keeps racking up awards and attention. Congratulations again, and um, thank you for having me along today. Mm. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, the Rondo Award nominee or nominations had come out, and I'm just honored to be included yeah. on the you list with it. so many other amazing podcasts out there. Um, so I do, I do appreciate that. But the reason Monster Kid Radio was any good is because I get to have people like you on the show, the guests make the show, the segments make the show. So thank you for helping to be, uh, to make Monster Kid Radio what it is and being part of that legacy for me. Awesome. Thanks, Derek. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for participating with the show in any way that you do, whether you're posting links on Facebook or retweeting tweets or doing anything on our Reddit or on our Discord, or if you're a patron over on Patreon, whatever it is you do, thank you. I appreciate you being here and being part of the show. If you want to know anything else about Monster Kid Radio, head over to monsterkidradio.net. That's where you're going to find all of our show notes and our contact information. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2482. If you have anything to contribute, I'll include it in an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio. Speaking of upcoming episodes of MKR, as I said at the top of the show, next week's episode is going to be a return for a guest. We need an official name for him. Steve Turk's going to be back on the show to help out. And he's not going to be doing it by himself. He's bringing along a guest of his own, somebody that you're very familiar with. Kenny's going to be joining him because he and Kenny are going to be talking about the classic film, Mighty Joe Young. Now, I've downloaded the file. I've listened to the first few minutes of it to make sure the sound is good. And of course, it it was. I probably didn't need to do that. I trust Steve. But I haven't had a chance to listen to the actual recording yet. While I'm putting the episode together, I'll be listening to it then. I'm excited to get into it myself. I hope you're excited to come back next week to listen to that conversation with Kenny. Now, Steve and I have talked about him doing some other episodes as well. I know he's got an episode planned with Scott Morris featuring the movie Twonky, which could be a lot of fun, should be a lot of fun, will be a lot of fun. So I know that's coming up as well, health and everything else permitting for everybody involved. So stay tuned, subscribe to the show through whatever podcast directory or country you use, and you'll get new episodes every time we drop something out there. Now, we are on YouTube as well with Monster Kid Radio, but Beth and I also have our own YouTube channel called Team Death. T-E-A-M-D-E-T-H. It's a D-E from Derek, T-H from Beth. So please consider checking that out as well and throwing us a subscribe. You can look us up on YouTube by looking for Team Death 48. We had to put a number on there because somebody else had Team Death 48. It's short for April 8th, which is the day that we're getting married. We are going to have some new movie, I guess, drop-ins or reviews coming up on there as well. We actually just recorded a couple of things that I'm going to be editing here, probably this weekend, where we went to the movies to see movies like The Big Sleep and a Godzilla movie. There are some of the videos on the channel right now as well, and I'm hoping that before the wedding I can have time to put together another installment of Monster Kid X which is a video series that I'm going to be doing on that YouTube channel. If you are a YouTube user, please consider subscribing to the channel and following along because we've got a lot of really cool content planned that we cannot wait to share with you all 
oh man, I'm so excited about everything that I've got coming up with Beth, whether it's this YouTube thing, whether it's some other projects that we've talked about. Uh, probably most importantly though, this whole wedding thing that's happening, really excited about that. Anyway, thank you for listening. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. Remember the Monster Kid Radio's registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Intro Spectral Man. That is copyright Robotron. They are a surf band based out of Norway. They are super cool, and they can be found online at Robotron, and then the number one, dot bandcamp.com. Link in the show notes, of course. Check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.